Welcome back to Creative Chit Chat episode 6. I'm Ryan McLeod and this week we've got Robin Griffiths who is an amazing illustrator and animator. She also was part of Space Budgie who launched the game Glitch Space. And she's now off doing her own freelance work and we talk about that, we talk about that transition, uh, we talk about how to use social media successfully, how to drive business through that. I think there's a lot of nice little tidbits that people will get a lot from. But before we go into the podcast itself, I've just got a little bit of chat up front. I've been doing this for over a month now. Obviously this is the sixth episode going out, so we have a really nice bank of content starting to build up. And a bunch of people have reached out and said that they love listening to the podcast on their commute, or they found certain episodes really insightful or interesting or helpful, or even reassuring that, yeah, it's not all doom and gloom and there are a lot of other people in the same boat. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do with the podcast. If I can do a little bit of that, then it really is a success for me. So hopefully as we go along the journey and there's more people on that we can grow and grow that audience so it can be more valuable for more people. And that's partly down to to you guys, the listeners, sharing it out there and helping me out in that respect. So again, if you could punt it out on Twitter and on Instagram. But on more of the, the production side... It has taken a hell of a lot longer than I ever expected, but I really want to produce something that's high quality. Although at the start I said I want it to be rough and ready, I'm starting to become a little more obsessive and I'm starting to get over that that thing of actually having to listen to your own voice. And you start to recognise the patterns and the things that you do, and in particular certain words. Like for me, the way I say Twitter and that I don't enunciate my T's and it sounds quite droll out. But in actual fact, if I try and enunciate Twitter, I sound like an arse. So I think I've come to the conclusion that I just really need to get over that and get on with it. But the other thing that I really want to improve production-wise on the podcast is the the sound. Um, I know that it's been lacking and a few of the interviews haven't exactly been in ideal settings so there has been buzz in the background or echo and that's something that I really want to improve and one of the things that I need to do in order to improve that sound quality is to find a consistent space I've been doing them within Fleet Collective but then you have people coming in and out of that space I've done a couple in my flat which is not ideal because it's a bit out of the way but I'd really like to find a quiet space that I could do the podcast in the city centre. So if anyone does know of somewhere or thinks that there might be a space available somewhere, please do get in touch. Uh, you can tweet me at cccdundee or creativechitchatdundee at gmail.com. Just drop me a little email if you've got any thoughts or if you have a, a space yourself because it would really help me out and really up the quality of the podcast which is one of the things I really want to do and that's all my housekeeping done so let's get on to the podcast it's number six and it's Robin Griffiths it's like oh did you fall into this I fall into everything (laughs) 
I kind of, but I think it's more kind of like an aimed trajectory though, but I don't really understand where I'm falling, sort of leaning. But then I think a lot of. of people have that sort of feeling that they don't really know what's next and something just happens and it's like, oh, well this is next now. Yeah, 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 no, that's exactly it. But like, not just kind of sitting around and waiting for something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I wanted to, I wanted to do something kind of arty on computers. So I went to computer arts and I didn't realise that Abate was a games university. I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> and I'm one of these people that, like, my dad didn't really think that games were a particularly productive use of time, so why would anyone play them? So we didn't, I didn't have kind of games consoles or anything growing up, so I was a little bit disadvantaged in terms of game history knowledge, and so everyone was there going on about all of these really wildly popular games like Zelda, for example, and I was like, well, no, I've never played them, and then they just sort of half disowned me when I said that. <laughs> but no, it was good, because working in games was, was fun, because a lot of variety. So that's kind of where I came from. And then met people at uni, because there's a lot of collaborative stuff that it tries to push you towards, which is a good thing. So yeah, met people there, and then started a company with them, worked with them, released a game, and stopped being part of the company. And now I do my own thing. So the university course taught you like a whole range of stuff, it wasn't? University course taught me how difficult it is to work with people. Okay. <laughs> and how best to navigate that. And it gave me, I'd say it gave me some skills on kind of working out how to figure out how to do stuff myself, which if you're in like a really small company, you need to be able to know really well how to Google search something that you've got no idea what the words you need to find are. And it's really difficult figuring out how to solve a problem if you don't know the right terminology. So I think that's the biggest thing other than the how to work with people that I got out of uni. I can Google search so well. <laughs> um, Which is a key skill. It is days. a key skill, yeah. <laughs> it's basically why like my relatives, they just come to me with things and so I can just Google search it and then just give them the answer that Google tells me. <laughs> Yay, tech support. I've forgotten what I was saying. <laughs> uh, I think I asked what, yeah, what was it that you got out of the university course? What, what was it that taught you then? And what was your role within... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what once, was my you, role? once you left university, what was your role within Space Buggy? Pretty much a lot of art stuff. So me and Mus, who was the original other artist in the team, we would basically try and figure out everything between us based on what we've got a little bit more knowledge in. So he was much more from kind of a pure illustration and like 2D background. I'd done way more 3D and animation stuff. So, and then we sort of fought over who had to do the stuff that we didn't understand at all. And then if one of us wasn't really working out what was best to do for something, we'd be able to just sort of be like, I, I am getting nowhere with this. Can you help me? Or can you do it for a little bit and then pass it back? So we got a nice system going. 
and then later on, because we had a, a few changes in team due to one reason or another, um, it, I, I ended up doing more of the business stuff, which I hate doing the business stuff, but I guess that's put me in good stead for being able to work by myself and do freelance, so silver lining to doing the business stuff. <laughs> so how many people started off at Space Budgie then? How, how big was the team? Started off, we were an amalgamation of three DARE teams. So I did DARE to be digital, uh, the competition for game things, build a game in eight weeks and then show it. Um, in 2012 and then uh, three of the teams kind of like picked apart and there was six of us although I don't think we started out as six of us actually because we started out doing a game called 9.03m which was Carl who was our designers um, it was his honours project so it was very personal to him it was very much to do with um, his wife's Japanese and so it was about like the tsunami in 2011 and it was it was, it was a serious game and it was it was nice to work on so I think there was only four of us doing it then but then that was before we were properly a company and then we got an extra couple of people and then we were working on glitch space so where did glitch space come from glitch space came from uh, one of the original programmers uh, Phil Cooper King, he he came up with it and he kind of brought it to everyone and it sort of developed through a lot of different routes after that and kind of morphed and, and changed and but the core concept's still the same it's still exactly what the original core concept was which is nice. So that sort of educational aspect of it was always there from the beginning? I think I think it wasn't necessarily specifically educational. Okay. I think it was just kind of a nice idea of it being sort of like you can program things and it's more of a simplistic thing and I think the educational side of it sort of blended itself nicely. It gave it an extra an extra thing to it. And I don't know I don't know where the educational thing came from actually. I guess that just sort of we sort of fell into that as well at some point. I don't know. I couldn't pinpoint exactly when that happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how long was it between you leaving university and then building up glitch space to a point where it was ready to launch? I was still at uni. <laughs> when you started, you were still at uni? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think we started it um, somewhere at the end of fourth year it tapered away a little bit and then I did a master's in fact me and a couple of the other people in space budgie did a master's and so we were working on it at the same time as being in master's which is a lot of work to do at the same time um, and then when, so we were already working on it when we left yeah so a while I guess and then how long did it take between so, so finishing the masters and then actual point where you released the game. About two years, okay. I think. Yeah, because we were working on it for about three years, and the first year was kind of a little bit 
I, yeah, I generally try and measure it by the amount of times that we were uh, exhibiting at protoplay um, because that's basically what I can remember and we ex we showed it three times yeah we showed it three times so the first time was super early prototype and then there was kind of a big change to the next thing and then it was basically almost release and then we did a big push I don't think we exhibited it for the last bit or that was after it was after yeah we did it, it was three years yeah. and what parts of it do you think you had the biggest influence over or do you feel like when you when you play it and look at it do you think oh that's that's a nice little bit that was my bit that I added in and I had control over that I think it's really difficult to point out bits I mean it the entire the entire art side of things it's really easy to see the influences that you're putting into it but it's very difficult to pinpoint that mm -hmm. because it's like me and Moose and then when Kaylee came and joined us as well like we gelled pretty well when it came to getting ideas together and getting them so that they ended up being cohesive and consistent and so yeah it's it's difficult to say exactly what my influence was on it but it was pretty big yeah it was very much on the the animation and the art side of it oh yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's animation and art side of it um, I was very good at breaking puzzles as well, so I feel like that was probably a good influence. <laughs> and there was a lot of despairing when Graham was doing puzzles and he'd put them in front of me and then I'd just kind of climb up on a wall and go around it and be like, no, you have to solve the puzzle! <laughs> but I want to go on the wall! <laughs> <laughs> so you guys created the title and then launched it. Mm -hmm. How is that? Like, am I right in thinking that in the games industry you measure yourself by titles like people think that's like a sort of a big milestone in their career by the amount of releases they've had and I think sort of I think if you're new to the career like like the first title that you have under your belt is really helpful if you're wanting to get a job um, I, th I think I think finishing things is really difficult like in any field so mm. I think if the more kind of actual finished things that you have, the more that you're proving that you can finish things and it becomes more valuable. So I guess that would be the main reason why having a certain number of titles under your belt would be a, a good asset to have. In the games industry, there's, there's a relatively high failure rate in the games that get started and never get finished. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's really hard. I mean, we almost didn't manage to... To finish because it's that hard yeah. especially when you're starting up and you've got next to no knowledge of business things and you have to keep everyone fed so and make everyone have the ability to pay their bills and then still be working all hours of the day and night to try and get this this game finished which is why we did the early access model so that we could get a little bit of income coming in while we were working on it but it's not enough so there's always you have to then start trying to do other things at the same time to try and get the money in so that you can keep working on it and it's it's a juggling act which when you're thrown into it with no experience is really difficult but i guess it's it's always difficult because now i have experience and i still don't think i'd be able to do it very well <laughs> 
So do you think it's just that because you were talking about being able to pay people's bills and allow them to eat every month? If you could sustain just that for long enough, then you could make a success of a game. Ah, uh, I don't know. I mean, it depends on what you think success is. I guess, because <laughs> um, like glitch base, it sales. It, it was all right. It's nothing magical. Like it's not like we're all driving around in really fancy cars and eating caviar. For some reason, that's now luxury. <laughs> don't really think I agree with that. Um, <laughs> but I'd still say it was a success because even though it, it didn't even get like massively brilliant critical reviews either, like it, it it got okay, okay to good sort of reviews from most of the places that we saw when it was finished. Um, but I still think it was a success because it's it's a finished thing. It looks nice, which from the outside of things that means that we did a good job. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and it does what we wanted it to do, even if it doesn't do it in a way that critics maybe think would be fantastically amazing. The fact that we managed to finish it and the fact that we finished it and it does what we wanted it to do originally is a success, but you, you never know what's going to be like a hit in, in terms of sales and i think especially because glitch space it's kind of it's a weird niche sort of game because it's not quite close enough to educational games traditionally to be marketable solely to that sort of audience because they're going oh well it looks a bit too much like a conventional game so it's not really it's it's clearly not going to be educational and then it's a little bit too far to the educational side of gaming to for the standard audience to be like oh well that just looks like an educational game so it was, it's like a hard sell to both sides so yeah it was it was always going to be tricky <laughs> but yeah so you guys got there and yeah. in the world and yeah you got a bunch of sales and it did well and then after that that project, after the game release, you decided that that was that was going to be it for Space Budgie, yeah. and you guys went your separate ways. You decided to go freelance. Yes. And how how was it making that transition from having a I suppose a a group of people around you, and maybe not necessarily a a steady income. <laughs> Weirdly, actually, because we I didn't really have a steady income when at Space Budgie to a point, um, because we were I was because I was. Um, doing more of the business side of things and I'm I'm fairly good at budgeting myself. I was I had more of um I had more of a want to, to make sure that everyone else was able to pay their bills. So mine was a little bit more fluctuating um in terms of income, which means that essentially going freelance meant that I was about the same level of stability I was before. It's just I didn't have to worry about how other people were. So it's actually a lot easier in that sort of in that sort of way. Because <laughs> it's funny, you'd, you'd think people would approach that the other way, and that you would build up to a point where you have responsibility over other people, whereas yeah. you sort of started off like that. I know, then... yeah, I was thrust into a position of responsibility and having to, to make sure everyone was okay and getting on with their stuff, and I wasn't okay with that. Um, so maybe that's why I went freelance. It's just like, no, I just want to just have to look after myself. <laughs> so... 
how did you go about starting building that up, so getting work? I had no idea where I was looking to get work. I, I had one lead from a friend that uh, the company that she worked at needed some stuff and I was like, well, I could do that. And so that was my, my only sort of contact, my only point of, I have some solid work that I can do to get income. Great. Now I need to try and find out how to get other things. So there was a lot of Google searching <laughs> to try and figure out. And most most of the things that came up were these sites like Freelancer and stuff. And they're awful just for so many reasons. And I really didn't want to feed into their game, let alone use them. Yeah, it feels like they're just out there to people that need to get stuff done really cheap and yeah. the quality is always terrible and yeah they're just horrible and places. And you spend all your time putting out quotes for things for really low amounts of money that's just it's just not worth it so I tried to find other ways and I'd been I'd been building up my Twitter for a while I'd been doing I've been doing like the illustration stuff that I do now um, like on the side of Space Budgie for a good few months beforehand, so I'd been building up a fairly steady increase in followers, and there was um, there's a there's a few people that I follow who are lovely enough to to post when they know people that need work done, and I if it wasn't for a little bit like I think it was about a week of difference time wise I would have got like some solid work coming in it was just because i couldn't start until the week after and they needed it that week but it kind of sparked a tiny light bulb of oh wait i can maybe try and get things through twitter if if people are actually looking for people and they're legitimate then how how can i how can i do this how can i do this better so there's there was a few people that I knew had consistently posted things, so I would purposely keep an eye out for them when they were posting. And then I'd start kind of searching for other people that were looking for things. And that seems to have been the best way forward. Because even if even if they're even if I'm not what they're looking for, uh, in terms of the sort of things that I do, then it means that they know about me, which visibility when you're first starting out is really difficult so they know about me so if something comes up that would work for what I've got then they're more likely to be like oh wait no I know a guy sort of thing and generally they end up following me which means they keep that like the repetition and sort of I'm, I'm still here sort of thing of me posting is gonna help and I had a third point and I've forgotten it. <laughs> uh, yeah, Twitter is really useful. I've got pretty much, I want to say, ninety percent of my work through Twitter. Wow, that's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And does that give you a sort of steady flow of of things? I wouldn't say steady is the right word, um, but I reckon in time it will give me a steady flow of things because yeah it's like as with sort of freelance nature it's a bit sporadic in when I can actually get work especially because not everyone is posting on Twitter to find things 
and not everyone is posting on Twitter like at regular intervals like I would like them to for trying to find specifically what I do. Um, but I've got some repeat clients from Twitter, which has helped. Again, they're still kind of sporadic in how regular they are, but considering that I, I didn't expect to be able to be viable at all from setting out, I was I was fully expecting to have to like rely on my parents a little maybe to to help me when when things were super tough. Um and I haven't had to at all. So I reckon that's probably a good sign that it's it's definitely sustainable eventually. I mean I'm not earning a massive amount, but it'll grow. Yeah, I think that's yeah. speaking to a lot of people they're kind of in that situation where it's you're not making as much money as you would if you went to work for a company. Yeah. But the benefits sort of outweigh the definitely the purely yeah. uh, monetary side of it. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I've never really gone into anything purely for the money. It's always for other things like experience or for free, for freelance. It's more more towards flexibility and. I don't know variety of work. I guess like if I go if I go and work in a company, I'm kind of locked into the sort of things that they do, which would be great, and I'd get really good at that one thing. But I don't know. I've got a short attention span, and I like I like jumping around a little bit in terms of what I do. Not a massive amount. I'm definitely still in the same area, but. So what is it you would? How would you describe yourself with what you do just now? Illustration animation. But it's all towards 2D stuff because I haven't done 3D in ages and I really like the 2D stuff. And not necessarily game art. Like, I think, actually I'm only just starting to do some game stuff. Like, everything else I've been doing um, since going freelance has been nothing to do with games. Which has been really weird. But I'm, I like making games so I'm happy to be doing it again. But that's what I mean, I can do a whole bunch of different things and... It'll keep me amused. And you've gone into product-based stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. That was that was more of a thing that I was doing alongside Space Bushy to on the off chance that it was going to be able to help me get a little bit more income. Um, and it's going okay. Uh, yeah, I, I sell a bunch of a bunch of my designs on products on sites like Redbubble. That's pretty good. It's pretty good when you get featured and they're getting better at kind of targeting who they're sending things to in terms of what they like. So the the, the concept of Redbubble is that you upload your designs mm -hmm. and people can request them get, to get created on multiple different products. Yeah, so. you, uh, you upload your design and then there's a whole bunch of templates and out of all the sites that I've kind of messed with Redbubble's got the easiest way of putting it onto things like you just place it on the products and then you can change the background colors or you can upload a slightly different one for things that need to be a different shape um, and then just kind of put it out into the into the world which considering there's there's quite a lot of products on Redbubble it can be quite difficult to be found 
but that means there's a lot of self-promotion that needs to be done for that. But at the same time, if you do get found by their staff and featured on the front page, then you get a few more sales. I think I've been featured four times now, which is nice. Two from the same one. There's, there's a pigeon design that I did in January that's been featured twice this year, and I, I don't know why it's so popular. It's It's got a lot of traction. <laughs> I've sold a lot of stickers. <laughs> so you've created this as a sort of alternative stream of income? Yeah, yeah. It's so it's because I figure if I'm not doing, if I'm not, doing client work then I can do my own stuff which is always fulfilling and my own stuff isn't necessarily going to be useless or purely for portfolio because I can put it onto products and then potentially get income from it at some point and I think I think it's the same sort of thing on Redbubble as anywhere else it's I think it's going to have a snowball effect because the more times that I'm featured the the more people start following me and or start favouriting other things that I've done because I'll be like they'll look at the other things apart from the feature and they'll start being like oh I like this one and this one which means it'll I reckon it will snowball a little bit it's definitely snowballed a little I'm actually getting something every month now not much but something and the fact that I don't really have to do much more than just what I would be doing for fun in between clients anyway means that it's it's a nice Nice extra revenue income thing. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot of like little systems and ways of working that you find out about how to get featured and even how to gain more Twitter followers and build your audience and all that sort of stuff. And it's something people just have to muddle through. Yeah. You just have to kind of work it out on your own. Yeah. Or try and read the articles online or, or whatever. Yeah. But there's no real. Although the articles sense. online, they're always out of date. Always. <laughs> So how have you find that muddling through the social media type thing? That side of things I actually kind of like. Yeah? Yeah, like I find it quite interesting to see what will, what effect like posting at different times has and hashtags on Instagram. That was, that was fun. Uh, <laughs> learning Learning about different hashtags on Instagram has made the world of difference. As in just specific types of hashtag or just how many you use or well i mean how many like the more hashtags the more chance like that you're actually going to get seen by people and to be quite honest i think i think at the moment instagram's more of a vanity thing than anything else i don't think i don't think anything's come out of it that's been particularly productive other than it kind of gives me a little bit of an ego boost it's like oh i've got i got some likes on this that's nice but you know that's important too <laughs> to make but, sure that you're still going in the right direction and that people are liking what you're doing. But then also, as you said, like um, people looking inwardly will see that this image has had, I don't know, 50 likes, 60 yeah. likes, and then that gives, that boosts their impression of you as well. Yeah, so it's but another... that's only if they see me through that, which True. I don't think anyone has Instagram-wise. I don't think anyone, anyone that would potentially become a client or anything has seen me through that. It's still mainly Twitter. Yeah, it's it's all Twitter. <laughs> Is the Twitter still a bit of a, a mystery? Yeah. To me. <laughs> um, but you were telling me about the like the best times to post stuff. Yeah, yeah, the best times to post. Like this, this came partly from from working at Space Bridge as well because I did a bunch of the the marketing things. So 
I, I was trying to figure out when's the best time to post, when's it gonna get the most traction, what sort of things should you post so that like you're more likely to get engagement. Gifts are great. Just gifts. Gif gifts are gifts are the best thing ever because they're they're just illustrations that move and they catch your eye and so gifts of your own work, not just like random things off gifts. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. More more of your own work. Because you've done a lot of them, like uh, your little ice cube one. And... Yeah, I love making gifts. Yeah, they they get the most. They get the most sort of engagement, and I don't know. It gives it gives everything because it's like when I'm drawing something where if it's just a static image, like I can see the character that I've put into it, but other people might be seeing something completely different. Especially when it comes to my mum, who consistently manages to misinterpret everything I've ever done and it starts putting your questions into your head going does it look like what I think it does or but it's it's usually it's just my mum which <laughs> which is fine but with the animated gifs like you're putting the character in that you see and like more often people will see the same character that way and it's fun so the best times to post on Twitter, mm -hmm. um, you taught me actually. How to do it. <laughs> so it's Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Yeah, generally midweek sort of thing. Although to be fair, like I might have taught you, but I I've been learning from from Rude actually, <laughs> <laughs> and he complains at me when I don't post at the right times because I get impatient and I'm just like I'm just gonna post now and he's just like you're not gonna get any any anyone seeing it. I'm just like I know, but I just want to post it now. <laughs> and it's midday as well. It's yeah, it's there. it's less. Well, if, the thing is, if you think about it in in sort of like when people when when are you more likely to be looking at your phone just before lunch when you're kind of itching to go and get something to eat, so like around eleven o'clock sort of time, and probably just after lunch when you're getting back, so somewhere around two o'clock. Um, there's usually a little bit of a spike actually just before going to work as well, because like about eight ish. But that's mainly because if you think about it, like people are commuting, yeah. so they're more likely to be online and looking at the phone. But yeah, it's if you think about it that way, it makes more sense. Monday, people are usually actually being like, maybe I should get some work done. It's the first day of the week. So they're less likely to, to look at social media stuff unless that's their job. And Friday, people are usually thinking about the weekend. So... It, it makes sense if you think about it that way, mm -hmm. but that doesn't make it any easier because it's still slightly unpredictable. <laughs> In October, you did Inktober. Yeah. Which, I mean, do you want to explain a little bit about the, the concept of that? Inktober is... You have to draw an ink. It has to... So, generally, it's best if it's traditional and... You should aim to be doing one a day and you have to post what you do online no matter if you hate it or not. Uh, they're the basic rules. You don't have to be good. You don't have to like anything that you do. The fact is that you're doing it and that you're putting it out there and it encourages you to try some things that you might not have done before. And it's, I don't know, I think it's nice to have little projects that you're consistent with. So... Some days I'd be rushing to try and find 10 minutes just to just to do a little ink drawing, especially because most of my stuff's digital, so traditional is kind of a mystery. But it's, yeah, it's good. It's good to do. So what did you feel that you got out of that process? Um, 
I developed some interesting kind of techniques in how I was drawing things. I'm, I think I've always got kind of a battle in my head about how to structure things because I really like like the fluid sort of Art Nouveau kind of stuff, but I really like things to be structured. So I constantly like, I think there's sort of a battle between those two mindsets um, going on when I'm trying to draw stuff, but especially with traditional because like I can't do straight lines and then I'm trying to do really structured things and half of them are straight lines. So I think I ended up just doing straight lines. <laughs> and then kind of mixing it with watercolour and I've never really done watercolour so that was that was different um yeah no it I worked out a few techniques um actually I got some work from the stuff that I was producing which was interesting um I've had a couple of people that have said like asked if they can like make prints of them so that they can hang them on their wall, which was kind of nice, especially because they're strangers. Mm. That was kind of surprising. Yeah, so Inktober was good. Like, it it got a lot of followers as well, because you're posting consistently, so people are people will follow you because they'll be like, oh yeah, I like this stuff, and it's going to come out every day. I'm going to get one, one, one a day. I kind of wish I'd kept going. I tried to keep going with it, but then I didn't. A month is enough. A month, a month was enough. <laughs> I think there's definitely something to be said for consistent updates. Yeah. Uh, but then there still has to be that element of quality yeah. about that. So if you have, if you can maintain a level of quality over a long period of time and consistently post, then it's a good strategy for yeah. for gaining a followership and building that up. So, to go back to your story a little bit. So there was Space Budgie and now Freelance and then recently there was a, a BAFTA. Oh yeah. That sort of <laughs> just came along out of the, out of the blue. Yeah, and yeah that was, was completely unexpected. I mean it's nice, it's a nice sort of, a nice sort of end thing to finish on for, for Space Budgie. It's, it was kind of surreal. <laughs> wasn't really expecting it, like fully fully convinced that the one of the other other nominees was gonna get it. So you could only get two tickets to the ceremony, so but you could all go to the the day before nominees party. So we all went through and we were having like nominees party just being like, Oh yeah, we get we get to just kind of have some, some free booze and 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 chill and be fancy for once, because when do we ever get a chance to dress up fancy? <laughs> And then me and Kaylee were on the bus back the next day while the ceremony was happening. And so we just found out randomly through Twitter, just being like, oh yeah, oh, oh, we won. Huh. <laughs> that's, that's weird. <laughs> so you'd sort of done the celebration a bit before, yeah. before you found out. <laughs> I still haven't seen the trophy. <laughs> <laughs> I really need to sort that out. <laughs> So you've not worked out a rotor system? Oh no, no, no. I reckon no. We've got we've got a couple of ideas for the trophy, but I, I think it'd be kinda of weird if any one of us just kept it and we're all kind of scattered to a point where having a rotor system I mean having a rotor system anyway just seems a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll figure something out. And I know you you talked about before in the office about your your Twitter handle. 
Oh god. And actually adding whether or not to add BAFTA award winning <laughs> to your Twitter hand. So what what was the thoughts behind that? Well, I mean, because while getting a BAFTA is great, purely for kind of ego and the fact that we managed to produce something that's worthy of it, I guess, I'm not really planning on looking for a job anytime soon, and it just feels like, it's just like, oh, it's a nice thing to put on my non-existent CV. And well, I think the only reason that it's in my Twitter bio is because one of my Twitter buddies was just like, you need to put this in. And I was just like, I don't really want to. It just seems a little bit corny. Um, and he's like, no, you have to. And so I did just to say them. And then they were like, no, you have to, you have to at BAFTA in it, which just seems even worse. So I have, I might take that off actually. But yeah, it's just sitting in my, in my Twitter bio. I think awards are, are funny things. They're obviously nice to get. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a showing an appreciation of, yeah. of what you've already created. But there's that thing where people use it to brag. Yeah, but I I don't really I don't really want to brag because I don't know it just seems a bit weird. Like if they, I don't think an award is the best way of showing that I can do quality stuff. I think the stuff is the best way of showing that I can do quality stuff. So I think the award's nice for me to have because it's again it's the the kind of self worth it ups it. It's a little bit of kind of confirmation. Because people are quick to criticise, but it's it's much more difficult for people to compliment. So a little award is it's nice. It shows that you're going in the right direction with, with some of the things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. But in terms of getting work, I don't think it should be used really to get work. I mean, if it makes a difference, I, it just makes me uncomfortable, I think. Yeah, I can understand that. and But it's not necessarily... It's not necessarily you that is going to impress that know, little BAFTA. So, but there are certain types of people who could potentially give you great work yeah. that it would really impress them and say, oh, maybe I, I will get in contact with. And that's why it's sitting in my Twitter bio and I don't ever bring attention to it. It's just like if they want to read who I am, then they can see that. But I'm not going to shove it in people's faces. <laughs> it just seems like a horrible thing. Just be like, oh, yeah, by the way, I want a BAFTA. <laughs> give me work. <laughs> I want to move on to talk a little bit about City uh-huh. and the sort of change and stuff that's going on here at the moment. And maybe a little bit of perspective on the games industry might be quite nice. Sure. Um, just how you think that this change is going to affect it. Because I think before this whole focus on design had emerged, there was, there was a big focus in Dundee on, on games. Yeah. And to get your perspective on what the, the games industry is like in Dundee. I'm going to kind of combine the questions, I think. Okay. Because there's something that's been happening more and more frequently in Dundee, which I think is pretty great. And there's there's kind of more encouragement to collaborate with people that aren't necessarily in your field, which it just brings new life to everything. Instead of getting stuck in the kind of, this is the right way of doing things and this is how we're going to keep moving forward and this is the only way of things. Whereas if you start bringing in something which is similar creatively but has completely different methods to get there, you can start learning from each other and potentially come out with something way better. And I think that that needs to be applied to the games side of things as well because... Games, are, they're sort of in their own little world in Dundee. 
Um, but it would do them, I think it would do it the world of good to, to actually collaborate with some of the other completely not related to games things. Um, I mean, there's an example in, in AAA, there's a game that just came out, Dishonored 2, and they actually hired um, a fashion designer to to design their clothes. So the fashion designer's not going to have any idea about like what's sort of possible, but they're going to have way more knowledge than anyone who's just like, like being a concept artist that's expected to do a range of stuff. So that's that's like an amazing collaboration because it means the the design of the of the fashion in in Dishonored Two is is amazing. Like it's got a great aesthetic to it. It's it's like you can tell that it's got more thought to it, and so it would be nice to apply that in other ways. To me, that sounds bizarre that that's never happened. Before. I know. I well, it's just because, again, it's you get stuck in your own little bubble, and it's it's like the same way that you go to an event and it'll be the same people that you see there and it's exactly the same in the games industry like you you'll go to an event in dundee and you'll see the same faces it's the same faces that are willing to go and talk to other people a lot of people in the games industry aren't very good at going and talking to other people so you need to have those people that are bringing in and kind of forcing these sort of collaborations to happen but that takes money and time and it's always difficult to coordinate but it would be it would be really good if it could happen more mm -hmm. I, mean, I think that's to be said across all the little bubbles that yeah. we, we see that exist in Dundee and, and further afield like you're right in that it's getting people to break out of that and then start to make those connections yeah. um, something that creative Dundee's trying really hard to make happen that's what i mean like there's there's been some some great sort of little things that have been popping up about trying to to get them together and creative dundee is one of them there was a, another thing that happened recently hatch uh, which was really nice because that was that was bringing together a bunch of people that would probably have never worked together to to create something new so it's it's nice that it's kind of being tested and it's nice that it's moving in a direction where that's going to be encouraged a little bit more or at least look like it's more of an option but I still think that games like the games industry in Dundee hasn't really looked around at all and no one's really kind of forced them to to kind of open their bubble yet so I don't know maybe some sort of targeted assault at their bubble. So in terms of the, the city if you could see one change Mm -hmm. uh, whether that's tiny or whether that's gigantic, what what would you like to see? That is a big question. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> I guess it doesn't have to be. I don't know. I guess I guess I want it to continue with this trend of collaboration, but you know, go further with it as far as it can. Let's just mix up all of the disciplines. Let's just everyone transplant one to the left in terms of job for a day and see what happens that would that would just be chaos maybe maybe we need a little bit of chaos just to kind of mix things up get people out of their comfort zones a little bit i think there is something to be said for that but yeah. sometimes as you said with inktober and that then yeah it wasn't something you were comfortable with but it actually drove new yeah. business it, you need to be yeah. okay with failure and like because failure is just the best way of learning about things so if you're like with Inktober, like if you just 
set out knowing that you're probably going to fail nine times out of ten, but you're going to learn a bunch of stuff, then that's probably... Yeah, yeah. I'd like, I'd like people to fail more. <laughs> <laughs> and that's coming from someone in the games industry. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm proficient at failing. <laughs> but that's what I mean. That's why I get better at stuff, because I'm okay with failing. Yeah, because you learn way more of your yeah. failures than what you do of your successes. That's yeah. So if, if people do want to go and find your work and get in touch with you, how would they do that? Best way is through Twitter, funnily enough. Um, so my handle is kind of difficult, I guess, but that's my own fault and I'm stubborn and I don't really want to change it. It's Mellophilus, M-E-L-O-P-H-I-L-U-S. And while it's completely difficult for people to ever remember, it's it's got a meaning because it, it's it's Latin for European Robin, which makes sense because I'm Robin. And so it's nice. And it's never taken on anything as a username, which always helps. And do the same on Instagram? It's Yeah, it's pretty much the same across the board. So I'm in Instagram and on Redbubble. You name it. I'm probably on it as Mellow Phyllis. Dribble? Yeah, yeah, Dribble. I'm on it as Mellow Phyllis. Or my name. Um, oh yeah, I've got a Facebook page. That's Mellow Phyllis as well. No, thanks very much. <laughs> no problem. And that was Robin. Episode number six. And thanks very much to her for coming on. And giving some really insightful hints and tips, especially around the, the social media stuff. Um, her advice has, has really helped me a lot with that. Even just down to the, the times of day to, to tweet and when's best and when you get the most engagement. It really does help you grow your followers, um, which is fantastic. So thanks to her. And again, you can get her on at Melophilus. Um, you'll find the correct spelling in the show notes and the links to all our all our social profiles and all the things that we discussed as well. But before I go, I just want to sneak in another little plug. I know I mentioned before about the wrapping paper that myself and Katie Guthrie had created for Christmas. And we've now done a series of cards as well, which you can find on slobs and blobs uk. so it's a little print shop that we've set up uh, so this is our Christmas run going out just now and we'll be putting out a bunch more things in the new year so go and check that out thanks again and I will catch you next week